Good evening. Uh, can we make a, a, a start now, uh, please? Uh, thank you all very much uh, for coming and uh, welcome uh, to this evening's uh, public uh, lecture. Uh, my name is uh, Giles uh, Atkinson. I'm from the Department of Geography uh, and Environment uh, and together with the Grantham Research Institute uh, for Climate Change and Environment, um, the, uh, my department is hosting uh, this evening's, uh, this evening's uh, event. Um, now, before I uh, introduce uh, our speaker, uh, Professor Dieter Helm, uh, in, in a moment, just to say the, the, the lecture will be uh, for about uh, 45 minutes. There'll be time for about 25 minutes of uh, questions and, uh, and answers. And there'll also be an opportunity, uh, Dieter will be talking about his uh, new book on natural uh, capital uh, for a, uh, uh, if anyone wants to purchase the book and uh, for a book uh, signing. And we aim to um, to uh, start that at around uh, 10, uh, 10 to 8 uh, and maybe go on for about 10 or, or 15 minutes uh, or, or so so uh, Dieter can, uh, uh, can uh, depart. Um, okay, let me introduce our, our, our speaker tonight then, please. Uh, professor uh, Dieter Helm, uh, CBE, is a professor of energy policy at the University of Oxford and a fellow of uh, New College uh, uh, Oxford. Uh, he's the author of many uh, papers and books, uh, including uh, Carbon Crunch in 2012 and uh, uh, Nature in Balance in 2014. Uh, he's the, uh, the founder of, uh, one of the founders of Oxera, the Oxford uh, Economic uh, Research Associates, and a founding editor of the Oxford Review of Economic Policy. Um, there's many other uh, affiliations, special uh, advisor to the European Commissioner for uh, Energy. But most relevant uh, to this evening and tonight's uh, public uh, lecture uh, is that he was uh, chair uh, until the end of uh, September of the United Kingdom uh, Natural uh, Capital uh, Committee. So this was the, uh, the world's first uh, committee uh, dedicated uh, to, uh, to natural uh, capital. It was time limited in its first phase uh, and it's just come to an end, apparently a a phase uh, two uh, is, uh, is planned. Now, Dieter was a, an excellent chair, if he doesn't mind me saying, of the, uh, of the committee. And I can say this because I was a member, so I witnessed this uh, first, uh, firsthand, just how his, his mastery uh, of, the, uh, of the subject area, which is really evident uh, in his new book uh, that he will talk to us uh, about uh, now, uh, Natural Capital uh, Valuing uh, the, uh, the Planet. So uh, setting his ambitions uh, uh, high, um, and telling us about his insights on uh, sustainability and the, uh, the use of natural uh, wealth. So, as I mentioned, Dieter will talk for about 45 minutes uh, with questions uh, to, uh, uh, to follow. But just a, a couple of other uh, announcements. Uh, so we, will, uh, we are recording uh, and filming uh, this, uh, uh, this, this event. Hopefully uh, that will be available uh, online uh, in, uh, in, in due course. Uh, I would just ask you as well, please, to put your, your mobiles on uh, silent. Uh, you mustn't switch them off, of course, now, because you need to be uh, tweeting uh, during uh, the, uh, the event, and the, uh, the hashtag is hashtag LSE uh, Planet. Um, and so let me uh, pass on then to our, our speaker. Please welcome uh, Professor Dieter Helm. Thank you very much. Charles, thank you very much indeed for your... Uh, kind words, if I may reciprocate, and you are an excellent member of the committee. <laughs> thank you. Um, and thank you very much for inviting me to speak this evening. What I want to do is to set out uh, a framework 
of the natural capital approach to the environment. And I want to try to do that fairly comprehensively. And I want to persuade you that uh, by thinking about the environment in terms of natural capital, we have one possible, indeed possibly the only way, in which we can address what will otherwise be an even more disastrous century for our natural capital and our environment than the last one was. So we do need to consider environmental policy in a context in which there will be perhaps three billion more people by the end of the century. That's roughly the world's population in 1950. Uh, and at current GDP economic growth rates, world growth rates about three to four, uh, world GDP and probably world consumption will be about 16 times bigger than it currently is. Of course, if the growth rate's faster, supposing it was true that China was growing at 7% per annum and it kept going, it would be 257 times bigger by the end of the century. So the power of cumulative uh, compound interest is pretty substantive in compound growth rates. And that's at a global scale, and all those additional people will require reasonable standard of livings, and they will depend heavily on the natural capital available to them. And back home in the UK, uh, we need to think about our natural environment in a context in which in the next couple of decades or so we'll add perhaps 10 million more people, we'll build 200,000 houses per year if the government has its way, and we'll have a major infrastructure expansion within uh, 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 the uh, spatial area. So there are big, big challenges ahead, and the trick is to try to find a way in which the 21st century does not turn out to be as disastrous for the natural environment as the 20th. So there are very global issues at, at stake here, but there are also very local ones too. And so what I'd like to do is, first of all, just try to categorise and set out what the problem is that we're trying to address. It's usually a good rule that if you get the question right, then the answer follows. And much of the thinking about the environment is frankly pretty woolly, pretty loose, and allows all sorts of things to fall within the general ambit of being green and being good about the environment. So I want to get the concepts right. And in particular, I want to relate sustainability and natural capital. You'll see um, that I'm probably going to be pretty critical about the idea of sustainability, um, and I want to explain why natural capital is a hard concept, a clear concept with clear consequences, which makes it very hard for companies and governments to wriggle out under the general label. So I want to fix the concept. That fixing of the concepts... I want to do very much in terms of assets rather than utility. I'm focusing on ensuring that the bundle of assets is maintained intact, that the next generation inherits a set of assets at least as good as the one that this generation has, but it's up, for the, up to them whether those assets make them happy or not. It's not a utility-enhancing policy. It's about just making sure the framework within which the choices people made are robust. Uh, in terms of uh, those concepts and that framework, I'll turn to more precise objectives. 
and I want to illustrate how the concept of natural capital lends itself to precision. To precision in accounting for companies and for governments, precision about depletion, precision about capital maintenance, precision about precisely what it means to leave the value of natural capital intact. And then having set out the framework and the measurement, I want to turn to the policies on what could be done. And I want to set out the arguments for embedding the idea of compensation deeply within environmental policy. Of course, dealing with externalities, which is very familiar territory in environmental economics, but also about how to deal with economic rents. That will feed through to how to fund a policy designed to enhance natural capital, and I'll end up by spelling out, hopefully optimistically, just how big the prize could be if we use natural capital to drive towards the enhancement of our natural environment. So, as you can see, I want to try to cover the domain of the territory, um, and if I skip, skip over some points too quickly, um, well, we've got plenty of time for questions, and um, uh, uh, maybe we can take some of those forward at that stage. So, the first thing to say is that biodiversity, which is part and parcel of natural capital, is really much, much more difficult than thinking about the environmental problem that's obsessed people, which is climate change. Climate change is really pretty easy. Not to solve, but conceptually. There's just a small number of gases. It doesn't matter where they're emitted, and there are very well-defined, separable externalities. It's a simple problem. The solution isn't simple, because it requires people to do something about it. But measurement and focus is clear, and spatial issues don't matter. If you turn to biodiversity, well, try defining it. It's a pretty tough concept in the first place. Is it species? Is it genes? Is it ecosystems at the narrow level? Is it whole global ecosystems? What is the unit that you wish to measure in order to identify what it is you want to uh, address? And then it's location-specific. We can talk about London's biodiversity. We can talk about London's natural capital, separate from discussing the Amazon's natural capital. So each location, each spatial dimension counts. And natural capital comes in systems rather than individual units. And therefore the conventional cost-benefit analysis, marginal analysis, etc., is a very limited value. It's not much point in discussing, say, the otters in the River Thames without discussing the River Thames' ecosystem within which the otters are set. And that systems problem raises all sorts of difficulties for economists which lay way outside the standard framework and textbook. So my, my starting point is that the concepts themselves are quite hard to get hold of. And while we put all the intellectual effort into climate change, which of course is a very important issue, um, biodiversity rather different. Now, how does natural capital help? Well, natural capital is pretty easy to define. It's everything that nature gives us for free. It's our endowment of assets nature has provided. And once you've thought about it that way, it's just 
one factor of production, one bit that enters into a production function and the economic activities that take place in the economy, but it breaks down into two very different sorts. And the distinction between what is a renewable bit of natural capital and what is non-renewable turns out to be extremely important when it comes to thinking about policy. So a non-renewable, think North Sea oil and gas, think limestone, think minerals, etc., is something we can only use once. It's non-renewable. There is an optimum depletion rate, in theory. It gives rise to economic rents, and one would have to take into account the externalities that come from it. But the problem about how to treat the non-renewables in the North Sea is a depletion problem plus a problem for making sure that the next generation, who won't be able to have those assets because we've consumed them, actually, you don't really have the assets, my generation consumed them when we had a party on the basis of that, um, we have to make some provisions in the future to compensate you and future generations for the fact that you don't have the resource that we had. Now, it turns out, for many countries, a short, shorthand for that is a sovereign wealth fund, they're setting aside of resources for the future, like the Norwegians do, like a number of other countries do. I will turn at the end to a particular twist on that, which is to say that the rents from the depletion of non-renewable natural capital ought to be part of a nature fund which ought to be used to restore some of the renewable natural capital. So I'm going to park that point, but have that in mind. It comes back at the end of the, uh, 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 of the lecture. Now, the thing that we really care about is renewables. This is stuff, I'm not talking about windmills, this is stuff that nature goes on giving us forever for free. So I put some uh, fish on there. I think they're supposed to be herrings, but they're probably not. Um, if you think about, some of you may not eat herrings, but the North Sea has and always has had lots of herring in it. Okay? And they've been there for as long as we've been around, perhaps, perhaps longer. Um, and every year people go and fish for these things. And they catch these fish, and the next generation catches these fish, and the next generation catches these fish, provided they're not driven below a threshold. If they're driven to a threshold whereby they cannot reproduce themselves anymore, the entire future economic value of herrings to effectively infinity is lost. That's a huge economic cost. Okay? It's not just that you don't have herrings next year. It's in 100,000 years there's no herrings there. Or as long as either evolution catches up with them or the North Sea um, drains or floods or temperatures change or whatever. So the economic value here is not simply the herring that we have now. It's forever the wedge of that return above the threshold. So we've gone, that valuation is open-ended, not properly capped, uh, caught, in, in my view, in traditional economic valuations. And certainly the loss is not captured. You extinguish a species, you extinguish the economic returns forever of that species. But the shortcut here is we're only really worried about those natural capital assets which are close to the thresholds. If you're way above the threshold, nature keeps reproducing it, we don't have to worry. It just goes on doing it. Okay? 
What we really want to home down on when we're worried about the natural environment and biodiversity in particular is those renewable natural capital assets which are at risk of going below a threshold. And I'll come back later. That means you should have a risk register for every company and every manager of natural capital assets identifying any renewable assets in that territory. Um, now, that's not necessarily the optimal stock. The benefits may, may suggest that you want a much higher stock way above the threshold. That's about what Optima are about in economic analysis. But this is just about the risk-averse prevention of the loss of that economic value forever going forward. So that's why we distinguish between the two types of natural capital, and that's why what we really worry about is these assets at risk in the renewable category. Now, in both cases, renewables and non-renewables, the concern that um, we have is... I say naturally, but it is naturally. It's naturally intergenerational. We're worried about these assets through time, and therefore we want to work out how to make sure that successive generations are not left uh, worse off. And this is where the sustainability uh, concept comes in. Brundtland made a famous, gave a famous definition back in the 80s that sustainable development is development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. It's not an environmental statement. It's just a general statement about the set of assets, man-made, human capital, and the environment, all together, which, which feed through into the uh, package that gives the next generation same opportunities that we, we have. What I'm doing here is sharpening that, and I'll come on to explain the trade-offs with other forms of capital in a moment, by saying the focus is a narrow one, which is to ensure that the uh, natural capital assets are kept intact between generations. There's no minimisation. And therefore, in that frame of making sure you get as good a world as the one I had, I'm interested in those assets at risk. And then this follows. The duty on this generation is to provide sufficient capital maintenance to ensure that those assets do not deteriorate. There's no depreciation here. There's no allowing assets to run down. This is about capital maintenance. In the same way as a water company has to ensure that its water assets are maintained intact through time, as opposed to a traditional accounting where things are historically, historic cost depreciated, this has to be provided. This is a very radical requirement. This is the equivalent of saying that a local government has to make sure the potholes are filled in the road. They have to set aside monies to ensure the roads do not deteriorate. Imagine if George Osborne stands up at the end of November, making his autumn statement, and he presents the National Accounts for Britain, and he says, well, you know, I've deducted from my revenue position monies needed to make sure that the assets within the government's domain have not diminished. I have subtracted the capital maintenance spend from my income. 
national income accounts would look radically different. The deficit would not be what he describes it as. Put another way around, in current GDP accounting, the government can simply decide not to maintain the roads, not to maintain the railways, let other bits of infrastructure decline, but, hey, the GDP number will not go down. And by the way, this is a generalisable principle to the infrastructure and not just to natural capital. If governments have to maintain infrastructures in place, physical as well as natural, roads, railways, um, water systems, etc., which they should, arguably, then the government's financial position is net, not gross, of that capital maintenance expenditure. And I'll come back to that in a moment, but that's very, very important. And we have to, in addition, deal with this intergenerational problem for non-renewables. That's that North Sea oil and gas that I've used up. Um, And there we have to make some provision and some intergenerational transfer. So instead of the Chancellor Exchequer for the last two decades presenting national income accounts as if all the North Sea oil and gas is income, they would have to subtract from their annual budget account the economic rent from that depletion to provide in intergenerational accounts to the next generation that amount. That's the sovereign wealth fund that we don't have. And that's why the growth rate in the 80s and 90s in particular, uh, I think in the Thatcher period, peak to peak and trough to trough is about 1.7 per annum, is not actually a correct representation of what the growth rate was. You need to subtract from that the economic rents for all the North Sea oil and gas that flowed through the government accounts for the period. So this focus here changes the way in which you think what an economy is in terms of its functioning and changes in particular the way in which you think about the accounting. Now, the difference in the sustainability uh, literature, and it's something that Giles has written quite a long time ago, uh, absolutely excellent, um, uh, uh, excellently about these distinctions. In the sustainability literature... There are two different views about how the environment and these natural assets fit into the economy. A conventional economist will say, look, there are N factors of production. Human capital, uh, physical labour, I suppose. Um, There's manufactured capital, infrastructure, natural capital. And what we do is we just take all those different kinds of capital stock, all those different assets and combine them together in the mixer, and out comes output. And there are choices to be made. Do you use a bit more capital or a bit more labour? Anyone who's done 101 economics, remember isoquants trading off one thing against the other, and we just assume substitution between them. Now, what some, what you might call, deep green environmentalists say is there is no possibility that you can substitute for natural capital. So, for example, they might say, think of an ancient woodland and think about a plan to put HS2 through the middle of it. No, can't be done. You can't substitute away for that that piece of ancient woodland for a bit of physical capital, the railway line. You just can't do it. Stop. The problem with that non-substitution is it is fantastically radical in its implications. It suggests that almost all of the economic activities that take place in the world's economies would have to be completely reconfigured and that people's standard of living would have to fall dramatically. 
Um, I think intellectually it's, it's challengeable, but practically it's not going to get us anywhere at all in this overarching attempt to improve our natural environment. Now, once you admit that some substitution can take place, the question is how much and of what form? And in production function types of way for economists, it, it depends on whether you think that natural capital is just one factor of production which, for which there can be some substitution, or whether you think that all the other forms of assets are ultimately derived from natural capital, and therefore the natural capital base has to have special protection underneath. So this goes to the heart for economists of what a production function is and where it fits. No substitution seems to me to be impossible. Some substitution, but limited substitution, is what the name of this game is about. Remember that for almost all of human history, economic development has basically been crunching natural capital to replace it with physical and human capital. We've been clearing the forests, uh, damming the rivers, uh, harvesting the, the crops, etc., for all of human history, all of human history has been a struggle against nature. What we're talking about now is hitting the constraints beyond which you cannot go. So the kind of substitutions that I'm interested in, and where, which fit into the framework of policy, which I'll come to uh, in a bit, are where we know we're going to do some damage to natural capital, but we can think of other substitutions which compensate for that damage. So take where I started. It's inconceivable that you could have another 3 billion people on the planet, or 10 million people in Britain, that you could build 200,000 houses a year and not damage or substitute from some natural capital. There is going to be very substantial environmental damage from the economic development in the conventional form, which is going to take place. The question is whether there's compensation for that by substituting elsewhere to enhance natural capital assets, whether that can be achieved and in what form that might be done. And that's the policy framework that I come to. So the important point here is to say, to deny any substitution between natural capital and other assets is, in my view, utopian. And it's not a very nice utopia. And it's completely impractical. The question is not whether there's going to be further damage to some natural capital assets. The question is which natural capital assets can be damaged, which can't, and what compensation follows from that damage. And that's what I want to come on to in a second. Now, I said that this was a focus on assets, and I think this is extremely important in how you define the intergenerational relationship of assets between this generation and the next. Most economists focus on utility. So if you think about what sustainability means in a standard economic framework, what it means is that utility should not decline through time. The next generation should be at least as happy as this for the services, etc., that flow from the assets that are there. Natural capital approach is much more limited. It doesn't say the next generation should be as happy as us. It doesn't say they should have as much utility as we do. It simply says that their basis for the choices they make should not be constrained by the fact that they don't have the assets that we do. And if you think to 
um, alluded to at the outset, but if you think to a lot of the ways we think of the construction of the welfare state, for example, we don't say we want to make everybody through generations equally well in utils or whatever. We say there will be a health service which is available for them in order that they can sort out their health issues within the framework. We provide an education system, an education system of assets, and then people can uh, make the choices they wish to make. We provide a transport network. We provide a water system. We provide an electricity system. We provide assets within which choices can be made, but not utility itself. And so this is limited. This is not making people happy per se, through generations. It's just narrowly focused on making sure each generation has that set of assets. Now, I introduce in my book, and it's implicit in the Natural Capital Committee work, but not explicit, a way of trying to capture the constraint and the substitution between different kinds of assets and the policy rule that I think should drive environmental policy going forward. It's in asset terms, not utility, and I advocate two versions. The first is that the damage is now so serious to natural capital that we do not want the aggregate of natural capital to decline anymore. So the aggregate of natural capital, renewable natural capital, it makes no sense to say the aggregate of non-renewable should stay constant, Someone's got to use the oil and gas. Someone's got to use the minerals. It's got to be just in renewables. The aggregate level of renewable natural capital should be kept at least constant. And wherever it's damaged, because there will be damage to our environment, there should be general capital compensation for the depletion of um, uh, 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 the bit that is going to get damaged, which is the non-renewables. Okay, So you hold the aggregate of renewables constant, you're going to deplete the non-renewables, but you must make compensation generally. And that does not distinguish between making compensation in terms of schools, hospitals, and other physical assets, or the environment. It's just a general rule. The strong aggregate natural capital rule, which is the one I think the, the one I think that governments should pursue, and I think uh, it's implicit in the government's white paper in 211, um, Uh, is that we should keep the renewables level constant, the economic rents for the depletion of non-renewables should be invested in renewable natural capital. So that says depleting shale, depleting the North Sea oil and gas should not produce a general sovereign wealth fund, which is what the first rule says. It says it should produce a nature fund for the restoration of natural capital, renewable natural capital, because the current level is suboptimal. And that's the driving, overarching objective or rule from which then the policies derive. And the policy framework then becomes relatively straightforward. We have to construct a set of accounts, because you don't know whether your assets are going up or going down in aggregate. There's still substitution going on within the aggregate. So you have to have the accounts... And the accounting framework is pretty straightforward. Natural assets are assets in perpetuity. They're core uh, environmental uh, systems, things like river catchments, for example, air quality and so on. 
and there has to be capital, uh, capital maintenance because there is no depreciation permissible. No depreciation, why? Because the aggregate capital rule says you must maintain the overall aggregate constant. So it's assets in perpetuity. There have to be provisions, and that's the revenue for the capital maintenance and the economic rents from the non-renewables. Of course, externalities have to be incorporated, so there has to be green taxes or green subsidies because to have an externality is inefficient, so you want to incorporate that within the economy. Polluters need to pay within this framework. And then out comes the budget at the end, George Osborne's statement in uh, November, the autumn statement, or rather the restatement of the budget uh, with this natural capital balance sheet and the rules that are in place. Now, as I said at the beginning, I could be much more radical and say the assets in perpetuity should be regarded as all the infrastructures plus natural capital, but then the Chancellor would have a pretty miserable day in the end of November because he really would have to state the true position of the economy, its true underlying growth rate, and the true provision that will have to be made to you for the overconsumption that I and my generation are still engaged in uh, and will be for some considerable time to come. This is not just giving you debts and making you pay very large sums for houses, which we didn't pay for. It's not just the conventional intergenerational shift. It's also that we're leaving you a depleted set of assets. So you've got to pay to make those assets better so they function for you relative to us. That's the true intergenerational inequity that's going on, and that's why you need a balance sheet, an asset framework, to work out what um, the underlying uh, uh, asset position is. Now, if you buy the notion that we should maintain the aggregate of renewable natural capital intact, some will be damaged, some won't, it's pretty straightforward to work out what economic policies follow. These are compensation. If you're not going to reduce the aggregate, if you do damage one part of the aggregate, you must compensate by improving something else. They are the green taxes and the elimination of the perverse subsidies. That's economically efficient. Your economy will not grow as fast if you do not incorporate the externalities within the economy. It's just economically a um, bad thing to do, not to tax externalities, not to get rid of perverse subsidies. And then there's the fund restoration. I just quickly want to run through um, uh, the compensation principle within this framework because I think the others are reasonably well understood. So, for economists... Compensation principle is basically a particular variant of the general Pareto optimality principle. Pareto optimality says that you should make any change, this is an efficiency criteria in economics, which leaves at least one person better off and nobody worse off. The compensation principle says you can make any change provided one person, at least one person is made better off sufficiently so that they can compensate the losers. Okay? 
Now, you might think that's quite demanding that we force compensation. But it's just property rights. Compensation is of the essence of a property rights system and therefore a capitalist economy. If I go into your flat and I start trashing it, then you can, well, you might call the police, but they may not turn up, but you can sue me and force me to compensate you for the damage I've done to your property rights. If I go into your garden and cut down all the trees and walk off with the timber, you can again enforce your property right. A property right means excludability. Okay? So you can enforce that. All we're saying here is, if you trash the common good of the environment, you should compensate for it in any seriously efficient property rights system. And if the gainers can't compensate the losers, then it isn't a sensible economic project anyway. So every housing development that comes forward, you want to make the housing development, you're going to damage, say, some meadow, some grass field or whatever. Okay? If this project is really economic, then it should be possible to compensate for the loss of that meadow. In my village, they want to build 500 houses. And they want to build 500 houses on a meadow by the stream that goes, forward, goes through. Never mind that it floods badly, but that doesn't seem to bother anybody. Um, and this meadow is a nice piece of grass. It's not particularly biologically special, but it's a nice piece of grass. It gives an open space in the village, etc. They are at appeal now, and I'm sure that the planning inspector will decide that uh, the need to build the houses is overwhelming over and above the meadow. Probably rightly so. But compensation says, right, so you're destroying this piece of natural capital. What's the compensation for doing that? Now, I happen to be the vice president of the local wildlife trust. We have a nature reserve a mile away from the village. Around it is some agricultural fields which are um, pretty biologically dead. And much intensive agriculture is uh, involved in growing one crop and eliminating every other form of life on that piece of land. Um, since it's so profitable to develop these houses, they could uh, acquire for us several acres to put on the end of our uh, nature reserve and thereby increase the area and therefore disproportionately increase the biodiversity opportunities we've got available. Now, you might say, we don't like this, this is a licence to trash, etc. But think about it the other way around. If you don't compensate for the damage you're going to do to natural capital, the aggregate will go down and you just lose the field. And that's what's been going on for the 20th century. We've been building stuff, developing stuff, but not compensating with improving the natural environment elsewhere, but only where it's appropriate. You don't do it where you've got a renewable natural resource close to a threshold. That's a no-go area. So this is only in areas where you're not doing irrevocable harm to renewable natural capital. But this is going to happen, this is going to go on, the aggregate natural capital rule draws a clear implication. You cannot let the aggregate stock go down. Um, on the, uh, um, just going back one, on the perverse subsidies, um, the most bizarre one of these is agricultural subsidies. Okay, so in this country, agriculture produces about 9 billion. It's about 0.07% of GDP. Or pretty much the same as the revision 
to the ONS statistics a year or so ago to include the illegal sex and drugs industry within the national income accounts. I was quite surprised at how small the sex and drugs industry was relative to the uh, the illegal bit to the agriculture. But it's a very small part of the economy, 0.07. And of that 9 billion, 3 billion are spent on subsidies. And farming is exempt from paying for the costs imposed by fertilisers, by pesticides, by herbicides, is exempt from uh, inheritance tax, uh, it has, uh, is exempt from diesel tax. I mean, a huge number of subsidies go into this frame. So because these externalities are not priced, you pay a higher water bill, much higher water bill, because the costs don't go away, because somebody isn't paying the cost of them, they go into the water treatment work that has to be built to clear these things away. So removing some of this scaffolding of things we subsidise and using the environmental subsidies in a more effective way is part and parcel of this frame. But the bit I want to uh, finally concentrate in the policy framework is the funding. Now, one of the problems that comes up in any discussion of environment is people say there's no public money. You just want to demand some more public expenditure. And the Natural Capital Committee was actually very clear that at no stage do we suggest there ought to be more public funding for these sorts of activities. There might be some cases in some occasions, but it's not really necessary once you think through the concepts I've advanced. The non-renewable depletion rents are not public expenditure. They are the rents from depleting those resources, and it's a question of accounting for those into a proper fund. The green taxes are not public expenditure. They are taxes of environmental externalities. And if you put those two things together, you arrive at a natural capital nature fund which is bigger than the wildest dreams of any environmental organisation in this country. The numbers are really very big very quickly. You just have to look at Norway's sovereign wealth fund to get a feel of how fast you can build up reserves from economic rents from depletion of of resources. And green taxes tend to be um, uh, inelastic, at least in the short run. Think of carbon taxes, etc. Again, the sums of money involved are very large. What that enabled you then to do with that fund is to say, let's not stop at the line of, if you like, trying to limit any further rot in our natural capital. Let's think about how we could improve our natural capital and take it to a more optimal level. And that means that we could use those resources to fund major green investment programmes and those investment programmes will be identified according to their benefits and therefore will contribute to sustainable economic growth going forward. And of course, any damage to the renewables would automatically go into the compensation fund By definition, you have to compensate for the damage, and so that would ensure that there's no further decline. Compensation stops the decline. The non-renewable economic rents and the green taxes fund the improvements. No extra public expenditure involved in this at all, all economically viable in terms of efficiency terms. And what that does is enable one to think about how big the prize could be The government's objective explicitly is that it should be the first generation to leave the natural environment in a better state than inherited. That is government policy. And what I've described in my natural capital rules and the framework I've set out 
is what you would have to do if you seriously wanted to achieve what is the explicit objective of the government. Uh, I put it in a a particular formal way, which I've done in my book, but the Natural Capital Committee essentially spent three and a half years saying what the framework would have to be to achieve that objective. Now, of course, it's open to governments to decide whether they really mean it, and the ONS numbers so far show that, in fact, natural capital has been declining since they... Uh, set out this objective in 211. So they're not even managing to hold the line, let alone improve it, but that's the objective. But that then requires being translated into things on the ground, stuff we can do. And if you start to unpack the economic opportunities in front of us in the natural capital space, and first of all there's the river catchments. These are systems rich with natural capital, incredibly inefficiently run. We have concrete schemes for flood defences, whereas we could be using uh, land uh, uh, flood meadows and things to absorb the consequences. We have farmers being subsidised to put pollutants into the soil, which then go into the water system, which then have to be dealt with on water treatment works to invest the capital, and therefore you pay for in your water bills, etc., etc. For those who may have Some of you may be familiar with the uh, big flooding events on the Somerset levels uh, 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 two or three years ago. This is an area um, south of Bristol. It's called uh, Somerset. Somerset means the summer lands, and that's a clue. It's supposed to flood in winter. The agricultural subsidies encourage the farmers to plough up the uh, land around the catchment and plant it with maize in particular, which has very high soil and water runoff. Uh, from it. The soils from the farming ended up in the rivers, the rivers flooded, the farmers demand that concrete should be put in place to prevent flooding and the 100 or 200 houses demand similarly that all sorts of hard landscape is put in place to prevent uh, further flooding. 200 million maybe more of hard landscape instead of which you could use the agricultural subsidies to ensure the soil doesn't go in the rivers in the first place. You could think about Uh, the small number of houses vis-à-vis the 200 million and think about all the other environmental things you could do and you could allow the natural capital of the Somerset levels to absorb the outcome. That's one possibility. Marine reserves are another one. Ecosystems are extreme importance. People don't see them, so maybe they don't care about them, but um, substantial. Wildlife corridors to connect different uh, environmental assets together. Uh, Agriculture could, of course, be radically transformed to improve its outcome. We could have genuine green belts around towns and cities rather than just agricultural land on which people are not allowed to build houses. Uh, Natural capital next to people yields very big recreational benefits, whereas natural capital away from people does not. And then urban green spaces. I was talking a couple of hours ago about the suggestion that what we might do is look at every city and every urban area in Britain and think about... Uh, uh, the entitle, uh, uh, of, uh, of encouraging the entitlement that no citizen should live within X metres of a green space. If you go out into Kingsway and you inhale that air, that's going to shorten your life. That's real pollution. Okay? Air quality shortens people's lives, kills people. It's awful. Green space in cities is an obvious economic way of trying to improve that outcome. Similarly, planting trees down all all, all streets in London would have a significant benefit in absorbing pollution. These are all just particular examples 
of ways in which we could leave the environment in a much better place. And every one I've described here has net economic benefits. So the prize is great. It can be done. Natural capital is the way to think about this. We need proper accounting, proper measurement, and then the economic policies fall into place. Because what we must do is maintain in capital maintenance terms our natural assets so that we do not do in this century what we're on track to do and what we did in the last century. Because we may have got by with less natural capital in the great industrialisation of the 20th century. I doubt we'll get by by the kind of scale of destruction that's going to uh, come if it's business as usual going through this um, century. And people have finally understood that we can't withstand what climate change will do, that we can't withstand the emissions that we're putting into the atmosphere. But parallel with that, people have to understand we can't do what we're doing to our natural environment and the rapid rate of extinction that's implied. And have a sustainable future for the next generation. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dieter, very much uh, for that uh, excellent uh, uh, talk. Uh, so, um, as was mentioned at the beginning, we have uh, quite a bit of time for uh, questions. Uh, so, if, uh, if you have a question, would you like to uh, raise your, your hand and please wait for the uh, stewards with the uh, roving uh, microphones uh, to, uh, to, to get to you. Um, if you ask a question, please um, uh, say who you are and uh, what your aff affiliation is as well. Uh, perhaps first the person in the tie down the second, second row here, just down. So we'll, we'll take a couple. Sorry, before, uh, a couple of quest, uh, questions, two or three questions at, at a time. Given that there were quite a few uh, hands uh, in the uh, in the air. Okay, thank, thank you, you. Uh, Jan Peter Onstad with Long Finance. You paint a very compelling picture, and I just wonder how uh, what the steps are that we need to make it more practical. In particular, you advocate the compensation, which means that you can trade off, in your example, a meadow for houses with a few acres of a, of expansion of a wildlife area. That's an exchange rate. And so somehow that says there is a value or a relative value. How sophisticated and how widely accepted does that system of value have to be for your approach to be practical? Um, there was another question here. Could I just see the hands as well? Where, um, and then a, a question back here as, as well. Hi, thank you for such an interesting talk. Uh, I don't think you're asking how to save the planet. I think maybe you could be asking how to save capitalism. Uh, you've not used the word once, and they are consuming the world's resources. But you have said, we, my generation, and I, I don't remember ever having a vote on uh, capitalism in my lifetime or in the last couple hundred years. Do you think it's time that we had that vote? Thank you. Okay, and maybe one, one, one final yeah, one. Please, uh, please. Question there, um, glasses, the lady with glasses. Oh, right. oh, oh, well, we can come back in a moment. Then. Sorry, That's, I yeah. I Apologies. mustn't do your job for you. <laughs> well, I try and be as fair as possible, but sorry. I, see, I, I ask it now, or? Uh, yes, yeah? but yes, please. Yeah. Okay, uh, so I'm studying in a Master's of Environmental Technology, and I'd like to come back to uh, the substitutability of natural capital. 
Um, I was wondering, uh, even though we can create synthetic, synthetic materials, yeah. so not coming from natural capital, uh, we always need natural resources um, because as a famous physicist said, I don't remember his name, but uh, we don't create anything, we always transform things, so we always need nature, yep. nature. so yeah. Yep. Um, practical steps. You're absolutely right that once you introduce the notion of compensation, you have to have some exchange rate. And, and um, it would be nice to have some perfect measurement. There isn't a perfect measurement. And um, the choice here is extremely pragmatic. You cannot make compensation. That's what we do at the moment. So planners just decide, is this a good idea to build these houses or not? That's it. Or you can have compensation. Okay? So I'm in the world of saying I want to put an end to the idea that there's no compensation. But I am forced to then talk about compensation. Okay. So now I think there's some important criteria. First of all, there are N projects that people would like to do to improve our natural environment. So I gave you a local example of the houses in our area and the nature reserve down the road. But actually, it might have been better spent on a marine reserve. Okay. So we have what in economists are called a supply function of all these possibilities. Now, the first thing to say is you want to be risk-averse. Okay? You only do compensation where it's not at a threshold, and you want to make sure the compensation is sufficiently great within the bounds of what we call safe limits. Okay? So you want an extra component on top. And then I think the crucial thing is it matters who's doing it. So that's why I think there has to be an institution which is independently making this adjudication, and it's not left within the current framework that's there. That might be some variant of a natural capital committee in the future. It might be something else. Um, but yes, the valuation has to be done. But in, in the case of my village, you know, in lots of cases, it's pretty straightforward. I, I use an example in my book. Uh, some of you may have gone down the M3 um, towards Southampton to go on your yacht. The, the motorway was extended to let Londoners get to their yachts on the Hamble, etc., uh, rather than have to go around all the by-roads around Winchester. And in the middle was a beautiful down called Twyford Down. It's beautiful chalk land, uh, grass chalk land with lots of rare species on it. And the choice was, don't build the road. The natural capital is too precious, leave it alone. Secondly, put a tunnel underneath it and pay the cost, a bit like HS2 with the Chilterns, or cut the thing in half. Right? If you ever drive through it and see this ghastly scar, you'll realise they chose the cheapest option, which is to drive the thing through the middle. At the time, the cost of the tunnel was 90 million. So all you have to do is think, is the down worth more than 90 million to make the compensation in terms, in this case, of the tunnel? So quite a lot of them are just boundary conditions. But yeah, it's pragmatic. But the alternative is too difficult. On the how to save capitalism, I don't think it's got anything to do with capitalism at all other than it's got to do with the rights to ensure that those who do damage should compensate for the damage. The aggregate natural capital rule could apply in a socialist economy. It could apply in a capitalist economy. Indeed, it could apply in any economy you can think of. Now, that leads to this idea that some environmentalists have that, quote, putting a price on nature is a capitalist thing to do. This isn't about valuing nature. 
This is about allocating scarce resources and working out what to spend those scarce resources on given there are competing alternatives. And even in a socialist economy, there are competing alternatives. And I certainly don't think our environment can wait for a revolution, um, but um, some of them may think so. And then on the, uh, we need nature. Of course we do, but what we've learnt is that, we, that nature is sufficiently resilient that it's withstood several thousand years of human destruction of it. The reason I impose the aggregate natural capital rule is my view, and it, this is ultimately an empirical point, which is open to refutation, is the rot's gone far enough so that we should draw a line under the aggregate. Now, some people would say we can get by without swallows and all sorts of species and we can genetically modify stuff, etc. Um, the judgment in the rule is it's gone far enough. Some people suggest we might eliminate half the species on this planet this century. Now, it may be that we can carry on with half the species, but once you've destroyed soil structures, you've done a lot of damage to the oceans, the marine resources, and all the pyramid of ecosystems on which we depend, my guess is that's a risk not worth taking. Okay, thank you. So we have uh, time for uh, another round of uh, questions. Uh, so, firstly, there was a question here. That you pointed, uh, in the front, yeah, in the middle. yellow, uh, orange scarf. Um, and then we have a couple over, over here. So, you're standing right in the right place. Uh, and we will, we will have time, looking at the time, we will have time for uh, um, some further uh, questions as well. Yeah. Um, my name is Katrina Kelly. I'm from University of Nottingham and the World Energy Council. Um, I can see how the concept gels well, really, with moving on from sustainable development, especially those countries who have really embraced it and moved forward. But how do you transition those countries who haven't fundamentally embraced sustainable development as more of an environmental problem and an economic problem? And what can you do to address sort of that laggardship and bring that up to par before getting to this next step? Uh, hi, I'm Julia from the Ministry of the Environment in Brazil. Hello. <laughs> uh, as you mentioned, um, the green taxes and other in economic instruments play a big part in your fundraising. I was wondering if uh, the private invest investors could play uh, another part, and what do you think about opening this fundraising? and other instruments. Thanks. Okay, maybe this is just one. Uh, hi, I'm from Brazil, also from the Ministry of the Environment. Uh, in developing countries, we are already facing uh, impacts related to climate change, and this will impose a more expensive, a more expensive uh, condition to restore natural capital. What's your opinion considering uh, historical uh, responsibility on climate change and climate change impacts? Okay. Take those? Please, yeah. um, so, um, I mean, all of those questions bear upon um, uh, international dimensions and economic development and trade-offs um, with um, uh, environment and other let's say, development goals. The climate change issue, you have to remember the... I said it's a simple problem because it's global and it doesn't matter on locations. 
Now, of course, that creates the whole free rider issue of how people cooperate to um, reduce those emissions and the question of compensation between countries that have put emissions up there in the past and effectively not accounted future generations vis-a-vis -vis the present ones. And that's a whole difficulty in itself. The natural capital stuff, much of it is local to the country. I gave you an example of my village. Okay? But there's natural capital in every village, in every developing and every developed country, and there's regional and national stuff. So the damage to natural capital that development does accrues to, in large measure, the population of that developing country. So on this day when the uh, uh, Chinese leader turns up here, it's a really interesting question to ask. Who's going to suffer for the environmental damage to natural capital done by Chinese economic development on China. The destruction of the three great rivers, the uh, desertification of much of the agricultural land, the health pollution and all the things that go with it, and now the dams on the Mekong which may destroy the Mekong system or its ecosystem going further down. And the point here is, this is unsustainable economic development from the point of view of the developing country itself to which it's being applied. I don't know whether the economic development of China is the greatest environmental catastrophe in the last 50 to 100 years, but it's a pretty big environmental catastrophe. And, and the point is, it's imposed on the Chinese people. Those are the people who are dying from the air pollution. Those are the people who are having their health impaired. Those are the people who are having to drink that kind of water. And those are the people who are losing their agricultural land. And if we switch across to India, you can see that there's a development path that will produce a similar outcome. Difference in climate change and the natural capital biodiversity argument is the impact of the emissions that India will make and the emissions that China have made are on the planet as a whole, right? whereas what I've described here is largely localised to the country. And so I think the natural capital way of accounting for things and the capital maintenance issues are appropriate whatever the level of development and indeed to the extent that the population depends more on direct nature, agriculture in particular, and natural products close to the point of consumption and production, it's even more important. So that's why I think it's different that frame. Private investment flows is a different issue in some respect. You see, if you own an asset, if you take the principle of property rights seriously, then you have the notion, and that is, a, you might say, a capitalist point, the big question that somebody else asked, then you have responsibilities and liabilities as well as entitlements for that property. So if you are the owner of a piece of natural capital, I think you should have to account for it and you have to compensate for the damage that you might cause to that piece of asset. You must capitally maintain it. And that's why corporate, national accounting, uh, corporate natural accounting is so incredibly important, that corporations have natural capital asset registers and that they provide capital maintenance and compensation for damage to those assets. And that's why, if you look on the Natural Capital website, you will, Natural Capital Committee website, you will see a template of how corporations should do their natural capital accounting. Giles has had something to do with that. Colin Mayers has something to do with that. Kerry Ten Tate. It's a really nice blueprint. And by the way, as a word of warning, everybody's trying to invent natural capital accounting for companies. It's the new business opportunity. Be careful. There are right answers and there are wrong answers. 
And what this should not be is descend into choosing a way of measuring accounts which makes a particular company or a vested interest look good. That's what's gone wrong with corporate social accounting and sustainability. It should not be allowed to happen with natural capital. Okay, so we've had quite a few questions from the front. I should widen my uh, field of vision and uh, the back as, as well. Geographical yes, space. So, uh, some questions from over this side. Um, maybe if we start at the, the front there, and then hopefully we can get round to the back as well. Hi, thanks very much for a brilliant talk. Um, I work for the Nature Conservancy, which is one of the world's largest um, conservation NGOs. And uh, my question is about to what extent do you think that the environmental movement has really bought into the concept of natural capital and uh, what could it do more to, yep. Um, yep. to do more? Yep. Okay. Good question. Thank you for the talk, first of all. Um, I'm currently doing an energy trade and finance master's. And uh, I have a bit of an off-kilter question, but there are enough predictions that by the end of this century, humans might not be the ones on top anymore. Do you have any thoughts on integrating or linking some of these concepts to artificial intelligence or yeah. more advanced technology? Okay. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay. Shall we... Um, maybe there's a question to... Uh, right next to you. Go on, go on there. Yes, go, please. <laughs> We'll come to the back in, the, in, in a moment, so we, we still have time. You started your talk by saying there will be substantial damage to renewable resources by the end of the century, and also noting that there would be three billion more people on the planet by that time. Well, my view is that the former is caused by the latter, so in order to prevent, or at least reduce, the former, it requires reversing population growth. Yet, it is not apparently an issue. The only statement by our country's government about it is it sees no reason to have a population policy. And we've seen several notable publications and institutions in this city pontificating about the um, immigration to Europe that's occurring is how good it is economically. But almost universally, they leave out all mentions of natural capital valuation. So my question is, how might it be possible to get those concepts introduced into the, into the consideration of population growth and into the consideration of the government? Okay, thank you. Um, on the Nature Conservancy, um, uh, brilliant organisation, if I may say so, um, uh, how far is the environment movement brought into this? Okay, so there is a schism in the treatment of natural capital. There are people running around saying that this is a capitalist conspiracy, a license to trash nature, and it's preposterous to put a price on nature. You can read that in the main correspondent in The Guardian on repeated occasions. And people like me are neoliberal capitalists um, uh, sacrificing the environment. I hope I've convinced you this evening that I'm serious about what we're doing here. And then there is the mainstream environmental movement that have seen natural capital as an obvious way to organise the way they think about things. Now, I'm very willing to tackle head-on those who think this is some neoliberal conspiracy or that they think this is an argument for trashing. Okay? I, I stressed, however, in one of the answers that it's really important to get the institutional structure of this right, okay? because 
you know, if you're going to do things like compensation and so on, you're going to imply these taxes, etc. You can't leave that to lobbyists to inf- in- interfere and influence governments. We've seen the disaster in the energy sector of, you know, the subsidy depends on how good you are at lobbying, not about its net effect. Um, in this country, um, today, Giles and I were talking about it, we both had something to do with One Wildlife Trust has produced their natural capital plan, Plant Life is producing natural capital plan, RSPB is bought into it. In the Natural Capital Committee, the National Trust, uh, which is one of the largest landowners in Britain, the Crown Estate, um, they all bought into doing natural capital accounts. The Woodland Trust has bought into doing this. Um, I mean, it's just stunning. So I would say almost all the mainstream environmental NGOs who have natural capital assets have bought into it. The campaigning organisations that have no assets, uh, some of those uh, are very hostile. And I'm, I'm delighted there's this debate. But, you know, you may think I'm hopelessly pragmatic. We can't go on with the status quo. We can't wait for a revolution. And there is going to be damage to natural capital. So if you're not prepared to go down the route I've described as environmental organisations, what are you going to do? And in my my wildlife trust, it's fantastically useful to do the accounts. I mean, we bought a nature reserve near where I live, which is an old farm. And we have proper natural capital farm accounts. Last week I went to the Mineral Products Association, which are basically the quarrymen, and you may think this is a world which is hostile to the environment. They produced natural capital accounts for a mainstream quarry. And it was really interesting because I thought some of the numbers were wrong and you can have an argument about it. But this is an engagement strategy. So I, I think that's, that's very interesting. On the kind of what I might call, if you don't mind, left field question, um, but AI, etc. It is very important to take into account that this century in which these extra people are going to arrive and economic growth presumably is going to go on is going to see massive technical change. Okay? Robotics, 3D printing, nanotechnologies, graphene. There are a whole host of technologies already coming down the track. You may think I'm pretty old. I am old enough to have done my thesis on a typewriter with Tipex and carbon paper. (laughs) And there were no fax machines, right? You probably don't even know what a fax machine is, some of you, right? Okay. The idea that I would have, by the time I'd finished getting further down my career, to have a powerful computer in my pocket. Did you know I can talk into and someone else can talk in somewhere else and we can have a conversation without a wire? Now, that speed of technology has happened in my lifetime. Okay? So if you roll this forward, there are enormous possibilities. And the things we should think about very heavily in this context are genetic engineering, strengths and weaknesses, new chemicals, and the danger or otherwise the environment of doing these things, and indeed some of the things that you mentioned in your question. So the technological dimension of this is important. When we say maintaining assets intact, when it comes to physical infrastructures and so on, we mean maintaining them intact so they can deliver the level of services they deliver. But clearly, you might need a um, uh, high IT railway system, which is completely different from the antiquated thing that I'm going to go on in an hour or so's time to try and get home. Um, On the population growth, um, I, I haven't mentioned it at all. It's a perfectly straightforward question to ask. What is the optimal population on this planet? and to recognise that additional people mean there'll be additional pressures on our natural environment. Um, And it's a perfectly sensible question to ask when people ask about the economics of net migration. 
is it economically good or bad? I agree with you. I think the conversation is entirely primitive. Okay? It is the case that we will build lots of houses because the population is going up. That will have impacts on natural capital. Is that a good or bad thing? That's got a lot of different arguments within its frame and includes in it what the consequences of the investments that will take place in physical capital for the higher population are for compensation in natural environment. But if you take my list of projects, green belts around cities, green spaces in cities, marine natural parks, enhancing um, agricultural land, ensuring natural capital is close to populations, thinking about wildlife corridors, all of this could be done and the net effect could be positive. Um, but pragmatically, I don't think I'm going to win my argument about getting the Treasury and parts of government to adopt serious natural capital accounting and get on with the 25-year plan, which is what we put together the Natural Capital Committee, by telling them they should reduce the population. So I'm pragmatic. I say, we are where we are. This makes sense. Whether you're going to have a higher population or not, let's do it and it's economically productive to do so, and therefore the Treasury should embrace this kind of analysis, and every Treasury or Finance Ministry in every country in the world should take this on board. Okay, so maybe we have time for two more, two more questions. questions. So if, two, and we, if we could go towards the, the back, please, and that way we can cover. Or maybe the back, and there's a question over here for this side of the room uh, as, as well. So um, at the back there, could you pass the microphone along? Thank you. And then there was one question over here uh, as, as well. Maybe I'll have time, sorry. Um, thank you, Professor. I work in accounting and management consulting, so my question has more of a corporate focus. Yep. Um, where would this sphere of natural capital and this obliga obligation on companies leave corporate social initiatives, such as education and other voluntary initiatives? Do you think they would be phased out, or would there be a way to incorporate them as well? Okay. Yeah. And uh, finally, sorry for those who we didn't get to, but there was a question over here uh, as well. Hi, uh, I'm Raul from University College London. Thank you very much for the presentation. It was very good. You mentioned in the presentation that the value of natural capital in the UK is declining. And the Office of the National Statistics is telling us that one of the main reasons for that is because basically the reserve of oil and gas in these countries are running out. Yep. Do you know or are you aware of the possibility if the government is considering establishing a sovereign wealth fund here to tackle that? Yep. Thank you. Okay, um, very quickly. Um, of course, corporations have multiple um, responsibilities and indeed opportunities to engage in uh, with the uh, communities and the parties affected by their conduct. And um, the natural capital issue is just taking one segment of those responsibilities because they're assets. Now, the good thing about companies as opposed to governments is they do have balance sheets. Companies think about assets. They do stuff in asset form. They talk about depreciation and maintenance. Okay? Whereas governments don't have balance sheets. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. There is no serious, comprehensive, credible balance sheet of the assets in this country or in most countries. GDP accounts are a Keynesian construction about balancing current income and current expenditure 
irrespective of what happens to the assets. That's why they produce these perverse results. But, yeah, of course, the other points remain. Um, and I really refer you to the corporate uh, natural capital accounting template that we developed at the Natural Capital Committee. On the social, social, social wealth function, no, they're not going to do it. They've spent all the money and they have no intention whatsoever of setting aside the depletion rates for the existing assets. However, the shale issue is so controversial that we've already got the principle of local compensation and shale companies are falling over themselves backwards to work out what they can do for local communities and I would like to inject what environmental improvements they're going to make in the local communities, taking no particular view about whether shale is a good or bad thing. Um, but, um, no, I mean, and if you look around the world, you can say, oh, there are lots of sovereign wealth funds, but look how many of them are essentially drawing them down to try to head off their current economic difficulties because the world got used to oil prices at 110, whereas my view just as a throwaway remark at the end of the conversation, is 50 to $60 oil is quite a high price. And you don't run down a sovereign wealth fund for, to, to bail yourself out of your public expenditure requirements just because the oil price has dropped in the short run. But um, I'd like to be optimistic. It may work for shale because of particular pressures. Thank you. Okay, uh, thank you very much. So before I, I close uh, the, the event, just a, a reminder that there will be an opportunity uh, to, uh, uh, to buy uh, Dieter's book and a book signing uh, just outside the, the, uh, uh, the, the room uh, here. But I'd like to thank you all for, for coming. Uh, and thank you once again, Dieter, for an excellent presentation.